morning, everybody. It's so great to be together. And uh, man, what a privilege and what a joy it is that we get a chance to uh, gather together, that we can pray together like this, that we can celebrate life transformation like we saw with uh, Joshua and Jeremiah. We're so excited about that. And what a privilege that we get a chance to open God's Word together, uh, which is we're going to get a chance to do here uh, now here in just a little bit. Uh, like Grace mentioned earlier, I do just want to say that if it is your first time here at Grace Church, if you're a guest with us, or if you're joining us on live stream, we just want to extend a very, very special welcome to you. But I do want to let you know, if it's your first time here, you are actually catching us in the last week of a series. And so this is the fifth and the final week of a series that we have been in called Neighboring, called Neighboring. Now, of course, if you missed that, if you've missed the past several weeks, uh, let me just kind of catch you up to speed with what we're doing a little bit. So in this series, we are focusing this entire series on and actually a pursuit of uh, something that is called the Great Commandment, the Great Commandment. Now, some of you may maybe have heard of the Great Commandment. Uh, the Great Commandment actually refers to a very famous answer that Jesus gave to a very important question. And so on one occasion, Jesus was asked the question, someone asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And uh, Jesus actually responded to that question, and he gave this very famous response in Matthew 22. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so very famously, Jesus said the most important commandment is love. It's love. It's, it's, it's loving God with every fiber of your being. And then in turn, it's taking that love and translating it into the relationships around you. It is loving God, and it is loving your neighbor. And so here's what we said in this series. We said, hey, man, because Jesus said this is the most important thing, we said our desire and our hope in this series is we want to teach, encourage, inspire, and equip and release the people of our church to live out the great commandment in our everyday lives. And so we said, really, our goal and our hope is that we want to be thinking biblically, but also very practically about what does it look like to love our actual neighbors, to love God and actually pursue a, a, a relationship in which we love our neighbors. What does that what does it look like biblically and what does that look like practically? I just got to tell you too, over the last few weeks as we've been doing this series, you guys, I have personally been so encouraged. Uh, I have had a chance to talk to a number of you, a number of po folks from our church in the cafe. I've actually gotten a whole bunch of emails from a bunch of people uh, at our church as well that have just told me stories of what has happened about how God has been using this series in your life, how God has been using his word, uh, relationships that people are beginning to initiate, conversations with neighbors, all kinds of cool stuff. I had this really awesome uh, the story last week, uh, a woman in our congregation came up to me and she had told me that uh, she has kind of been in a tense relationship with her neighbor for the past couple of years, one in which they actually haven't even talked in the past couple of years. And she said that God has just been working in her heart. And, and as we've been going through this series, we've been looking at God's word. Um, it actually caused her to reach out and initiate once again, uh, just to kind of a, a way to connect with this neighbor. And she said that that relationship that's been broken is starting to get repaired, that they had a conversation with tears and just an amazing thing. And so all I'm saying is it is so cool to hear how God is using his word to transform the lives of our church and our people. And so I love that. And um, that also makes me want to encourage you, if you've missed this series, uh, you can always go back and catch up with it on our podcast and our website. I would encourage you to do that uh, because I think it's so important and so foundational. But as we finish our series, as we kind of conclude this, what I want to do today is I just want to look at one final aspect 
of this whole conversation about neighboring. And so to, uh, to talk about this, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles. And if you'd open them with me, we're going to go to Colossians chapter 4. Okay, so in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 4, it's a small book of the Bible. Uh, but if you, uh, if you want to open that, that'd be awesome. Page 955 is where you're going to find that in the Bibles that we have provided. So feel free to use one of the Bibles under the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, take one. We'd love for you to have it. So Colossians 4 is where we're going to go. Uh, As you're finding Colossians chapter 4, I thought that since we're in a neighboring series, I would just uh, tell you something that I've observed in my neighborhood uh, as a way of kind of kicking things off a little bit. So I uh, I actually, my wife and I live here in Medina, and we live in a a kind of a cul-de-sac neighborhood. So it's one of those neighborhoods where every house kind of looks the same. And uh, it's it's one of those neighborhoods where all the houses are real close together and kind of out in the open. And so, uh, so in, in my neighborhood, it's fairly easy to notice when someone changes something on their house. Like, it's pretty easy. So if someone gets a new roof or if someone, you know, makes, renovates something or whatever, it's pretty obvious to see it. So anyway, it was probably, I, I'm trying to remember, but I think it was probably four or six months ago, at least four, maybe six months ago, I was driving down the street in my neighborhood, and I noticed that there was this one house in the neighborhood um, that they had gotten a, a new um, mailbox post. And so they had, you know, kind of installed this new mailbox post. And I didn't really think much of it when I drove past it. I just thought, oh, yeah, okay, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the, uh, the plow truck took out their mailbox in the wintertime. It happens all the time. So they're probably just replacing the post, whatever. So anyway, I drove past it the next day, and they had painted it. It looks very, very nice. The mailbox post looks very nice, very well painted. The next day I drive past it, and they have a cover over it. They have a plastic cover that was meticulously put over them, very, you know, nice cover, meticulously put over it. And I thought, okay, you know, just covering it, letting it dry, I guess, I don't know. I drove past it the next day, 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 the cover was still on it. And all I thought was, okay, well, they, just, they haven't got a chance to get around to it, no problem, whatever. Right? Then something weird started happening. And I started to notice whenever I would drive past the house that, um, that the cover, the plastic cover would, would be off. So I was like, okay, the cover's off. And it was off for a couple of days, and then a couple of days later, it was put back on, meticulously put back on. And then a couple of days later, it was off. And then a couple of days later, it was put back on. And you guys, I'm not kidding you. This has been going on for like six months. Like it's like two days on, two days off, three days on, three days off. And I just want to tell you, okay, just, just so you know, I don't actually care. It doesn't bother me. It's not a problem to me. But I just, I need to tell you this. I am just unbelievably curious. Like, I just am like, I just want to know why. I actually told my wife, I said, my interest is so piqued that I've contemplated, I have never met them. I want to go up to their door and ring the doorbell, but I don't want to be a jerk because I don't care, you know? But I just want to be like, I just want to know, can you just solve the mystery for me? Why? Why does this keep happening? And so why do I tell you that story? So here's why I tell you that story. Partly is if you have any information about the mailbox thing. I'm, di- I'm dying to know. All right, so that's the first, the first part of the car. I don't, if, if you're in the room, if you're that neighbor, I don't care, okay? I just want to know. All right, uh, but here's the real reason that I tell you that story. The real reason is because today I want to talk to you a little bit about evangelism, about evangelism. Uh, some of you are like, what in the world do those two things have to do with each other? Well, um, let me explain myself here a little bit. So evangelism, some of you maybe have heard this term before. My guess is a lot of you are familiar with it. The word evangelism, just put simply, is this. It is the act of sharing your faith. That's what it is. It's telling somebody else about your faith. That's what evangelism is. Now, 
Last week, if you were here, you might remember, we actually started talking about evangelism. And we said that evangelism, that this word right here, actually has a lot of baggage in our culture today. And uh, we said that, honestly, we live in a society right now where many people think that it's, um, that it's actually wrong. Evangelism is morally wrong. That there's something that, 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 that trying to tell someone else about your faith or trying to, 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 uh, try to help someone uh, come to your faith, that's actually a, not a loving thing to do. We actually looked last week. It was interesting. There's a statistic that said that about half of Christians today, half of young Christians, believe that it is wrong to share your faith. Um, and I think that there's some good reasons for that, by the way. I think that it, there's been some weird and there's been some really unhelpful things that have been done in the name of this word right here. However, last week we spent the whole time talking about the why of evangelism. Why? And here's what we discovered. We said that for those who follow Jesus, and I know that's not everybody, we said for those who follow Jesus, we should never uh, perform acts of love or care. We should never love people with an ulterior motive. We should never love people because we have something up our sleeve or because we have some kind of hidden agenda. We said we should never do that, but here's what we did say. We said, however, sharing our faith, sharing what we believe is the most important thing is an ultimate expression of love in the life. If if we truly want to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we want to love our neighbor, the ultimate expression of love is to share with someone the thing that is the most valuable to you. And, uh, And so we talked about that. Now, I want to encourage you, if you missed last week's conversation, I think it would be really important for you to go back and listen to that because we dealt a lot with the why of evangelism. But this week, as we kind of close things up, what I want to do is focus less on the why, and I want to talk more biblically and practically about the how. So for those of us who follow Christ, what does that look like? What does it look like to live out evangelism, this idea, in a setting like we find ourselves in today? How how does that happen? That's why I think we're going to get some clarity on. So Colossians is where we're going to go, Colossians chapter 4, and actually we're just going to focus on this short passage, but there's so much in here. And uh, I think it's so instructive to us. So let's take a look, Colossians 4. It says this, it says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer everyone. Okay, very short passage. Let me give you just a small amount of context as to what's going on. So the book of Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul. As some of you know, the Apostle Paul was a first century church planner. He was a first century missionary. And he's writing the book of Colossians. He's actually writing from prison. So I don't know if you guys can tell, but right here he says that he is in chains. Now, why is he in chains? Why is he in prison? Because he has been proclaiming the message of the gospel, the message about Jesus. And uh, he'd been preaching this in such a way that it ultimately landed him in prison. And so he's writing from prison, and he's writing to a group of Christians, to a congregation, to a church congregation, in a place called Colossae, which was an ancient city. He's writing to them. And I want you to notice that in this short passage, the Apostle Paul is going to instruct and encourage this congregation in two ways. I just want you to observe this with me. First, he's going to tell this congregation, pray for us. Now, of course, who's the us? Well, again, if you look at the book of Colossians, you're going to find that he's talking about himself and a guy named Timothy. Timothy, who is a protege. He also was a church planner as well. 
He says, pray for us, pray for me and Tim. He says, why? So that God would open a door for our message that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now look what he says to him. He says to this church, I want you guys to pray for me. That's what Paul says. He says, pray for me. And how should we pray for you, Paul? That I might proclaim the message of the gospel clearly like I should. But then he gives another encouragement to this church. And look what he says. The second thing he says, now you guys be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer anyone. Now, at face value, when we look at this passage, you might be thinking, okay, this doesn't seem all that profound or all that noteworthy. But you guys, I want, I want you to just for a minute with me, I want you to zoom in on a little phrase that Paul says here that I think is actually very illuminating. The Apostle Paul tells this church, look what he says to them. He says, I want you to act a certain way towards outsiders. I want you to make the most of every opportunity. I want you to talk in such a way. I want you to live in such a way so that, look at this, you might know how to answer everyone. You might know how to answer everyone. Now, let me ask you a really simple, probably obviously simple question. But the Apostle Paul is instructing these people, and he says, I want, you, I want you to be ready. I want you to know how to answer everyone. What does that imply? Now, here's what it implies. To answer a question, it implies that somebody is asking. It implies that somebody is asking you. You can't give an answer unless somebody is asking. Now, here's, here's the reason I, I highlighted this, you guys. This little theme that you see right here, that Christians should live in such a way, they should live such a life, they should talk in such a way that it, that it causes people to ask a question. You're actually gonna see that this is a major theme in the entire New Testament. Uh, Peter, Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, actually wrote another letter in the Bible, and he wrote a letter to a group of churches, and do you know what he says to them? Look what he says, it's very similar. This is 1 Peter chapter three. 1 Peter 3, Peter said, always be prepared to give and say it with me, answer. Give an answer. To who? Who, Peter? Everyone who asks you. Anyone who's asking, give them an answer. For what? For the reason, for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and with respect, is what he says. Do you guys notice the similarity? Be ready, be prepared for what? To give an answer. You guys, I believe that what the Apostle Paul is saying and what Peter is saying and that what the New Testament is saying is this, is that for the follower of Jesus, one of the ways that we are to interact with our neighbors should be that we should live in such a way that produces intrigue, that we should live in such a way that provokes curiosity, that we should live in such a way that is so different, that is so categorically out of the ordinary that it evokes curiosity. In fact, I really like the way one author said it. His name is Michael Frost. He said that for those who follow Jesus, our job is to live questionable lives. I actually thought that was kind of funny, questionable lives. But it makes you ask the question, what kind of questionable life do you mean? Well, it's interesting. In his book, Michael Frost wrote a book called Surprise the World, which, by the way, is a really interesting read. I would recommend it to you. And uh, in Surprise the World, he actually points out, Michael Frost actually points something out that I thought was really helpful. He actually said that in the New Testament, you're going to see that the New Testament seems to, 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 to show us that there's a twofold approach to evangelism. Now, stick with me for just a second here. 
And the New Testament, he's going to say, the biblical authors seem to show that there are two different ways, two different approaches, kind of two uh, different ways to view evangelism. So first off, when the New Testament talks about evangelism, it's going to talk about people, those who are spiritually gifted evangelists. Now, some of you have heard about this before, but if you haven't, the Bible's going to say that when a person follows Jesus, one of, the, one of the results of following Christ is that the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, the Bible says that he actually will produce. One of the things the Holy Spirit will do is he will give you spiritual, God will give you spiritual gifts. That each, each follower of Jesus has gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. And we don't all have the same gifts. We have different gifts. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 12. You can read about it in Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. They all talk about the idea of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us. One of the spiritual gifts that God gives is evangel is the evangelist. The evangelist. It is a spiritual gift. Some people have a gift to speak in such a way to others about Jesus that it is, it is compelling and it is inviting for others to follow him. However, there's a second way that you see in the New Testament that it talks about evangelism. That's the everyday work of evangelism. It's the everyday work. It's the every, we are all, every follower of Jesus is called to share their faith. Some are spiritually gifted as the evangelist, and some, some are just called to the work of evangelism. So in the same way that not everyone has the spiritual gift of leadership, not everyone has the spiritual gift of evangelism being the evangelist. So here's what Michael Frost says in his book. I actually like the way he puts it. He says, contrary to the myth that every believer is an evangelist, the apostle Paul assumes a twofold approach to the ministry of evangelism. First, he affirms the gifting of the evangelist. Interestingly, it's not the gift of evangelism, but it's the evangelist herself who is the gift. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter four. He goes on, Second, he writes as though all believers are to be evangelistic in their general orientation. Paul clearly places himself in the first category, seeing his ministry not only as that of an apostle, but also as an evangelist. Paul viewed himself as an evangelist. He says this, but it doesn't appear that he believes that all Christians bear the responsibility for the kind of bold proclamation to which he was called. Now, you guys, I think this is really interesting. Because if you look at this, I, I think I think that this is actually a really clear difference that you see here in Colossians. Do you guys notice what Paul says? He says to these Corinthians, he says to the Colossians, he says, "You guys, I want you to pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me and Timothy. How that we might proclaim the gospel clearly, like we should, like we should." But then, do you notice what he says to them? He doesn't tell them to do the same thing. What does he tell them? He says, "You guys need to be wise." in the way that you act towards outsiders. You need to talk in such a way and live in such a way so that when people ask you questions, you might know how to answer them. You guys, I think that this is a really important and clarifying distinction. I think it is. And honestly, I think if you're someone who's a follower of Jesus, I think the truth is that when we feel the responsibility, like, the, like we need to act like those who are gifted evangelists, I think for those of us who follow Jesus, when we feel like that's our responsibility to act like a gifted evangelist, I think that it can actually have a debilitating effect sometimes. I actually think it can. You know, maybe for you, you think of someone who just, who just is dynamically gifted to present the gospel in ways that just seem to make sense. Or maybe for you, you think about people who just, man, they just have this incredible ability 
to begin conversations with total strangers. They talk to the clerk at the store. They sit next to someone on an airplane, and like in two minutes, this stranger becomes their best friend, and they're pouring out their life story, and they're in tears about something. And it seems like some people are really, and by the way, some of you are really gifted that way. You are spiritually gifted evangelists. You have an incredible ability to build relationships quick and to get into conversations that are deep and you have a way of connecting. And I just want to tell you, that is a gift. That is a gift that God has given you and it's a needed gift in the body of Christ. However, what I want you to see is if you look in the New Testament in places like the book of Colossians, what you're going to see is the New Testament authors actually never instructed the congregation to preach in town halls And they never instructed the congregation to go door to door and begin spiritual conversations. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things to do. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is that it seems like the most common instruction that is given to followers of Jesus is to live a questionable life and to be prepared to give an answer when somebody asks you. Now, you guys, let me just stop here and kind of confess something to you. Full confession. When I first started exploring this idea this thing that we're talking about. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. Um, if you're anything like me, and I'm someone who ever since I first came to know Jesus, I started following Jesus when I was 17. I have been told my entire Christian life that my job is to act like an evangelist, act like a do, do these things that evangelists do. And I gotta tell you that when I first heard this idea, I initially bristled at it. I initially did. And the reason I did is just tell you is because I thought to myself, well, I know it's going to happen is I'm going to explain this to God's people. We're going to talk about this as a church. And some people are going to be like, so phew, you're telling me I don't have to share my faith. And you're telling me that I can sit down on an airplane. I could just put my earbuds in. And I don't need to talk to the person next to me. That's what you're telling me right now. And, and for some of us, I think that my, my fear is that we can view it as an opt-out clause to abdicate our responsibility to share our faith. But I'll be honest with you, after further reflection, I want to let you know, I don't think that's true at all. I actually don't think that's the case. I actually believe that if you get your heart and your mind around what the Bible is saying here, this is not actually calling the Christian to less. I think it actually is calling the Christian to much more. And you're like, what do you mean by that? Because this is calling a Christian not just to a one-sided, one-time conversation. This is calling a Christian to live an entire life the whole of your life has to be transformed. That's what it's calling us to. I think what this is saying is it does does not reduce evangelism down to just knowing certain words to say. It's also about living a certain lifestyle that ultimately causes people to see and to ask questions. I think it, it requires not less, but more. So here's the question then. For followers of Jesus, because in this series, we wanna be biblical and practical, You might be saying, practically speaking, how do you live a questionable life? How do followers of Jesus live a questionable life? So with the rest of the time that we have, I just briefly want to explain that I think living a questionable life involves three things. And I'll be brief about these, but just three things. And here they are. Living questionable lives, first off, number one, I think requires living an observable life. I think it includes that. Number two, living a questionable life means living an odd life. means that you're kind of weird, all right? Then number three, I think living a questionable life means that you're ready to give an answer, that you're prepared, that you're ready to give an answer. So let's just think through those three things together, and, uh, and, then, um, and then we'll get a chance to worship and sing. So first off, living observable 
lives. I want you to notice in Colossians, in our passage, the Apostle Paul says, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. Uh, Some of you guys have different translations of the Bible, and uh, it's fascinating when you compare the different translations. I want you to notice that there's a pretty common theme. So in the English Standard Version, some of you have that, the same passage is walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Uh, If you look at the New Living Translation, it says, live wisely among those who are not believers. And then if you read the message, which is actually not a translation, it's a paraphrase, but I like the way it puts it. Use your heads as you live and you work among outsiders. Now, if you consider all of this, do you notice there's a pretty consistent theme? And what you're going to notice in all of this is that all of these assume, these words assume, that followers of Jesus are among and are visible to those who don't follow Jesus, right? So what's he going to say? the way that you act towards outsiders, the way that you walk when you live among the people that you live and you work with. The whole idea is that a follower of Jesus isn't isolated from the world around them, but they are within and they are among and they are living their faith out around those around them. It kind of reminds me of uh, something that Tim Keller said. Some of you maybe have heard of the late, great Tim Keller who passed away recently. I always appreciated something he said. He was a pastor in New York City and he used to say this. He said, listen, for those of us who follow Jesus, He said, our faith is deeply personal. It is deeply personal. But he always said this. He said, but our faith was never intended to be private. God never intends our faith to be, it's personal, but it's never intended to be private. You know, over and over again in the Bible, you're gonna see that it is God's desire that those of us who follow him live our faith out in public, that we live out of public faith. Uh, Don't believe me? This is what Jesus said in his most famous sermon. He said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds. And as a result of that, do what? Glorify your father in heaven. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you're the salt, you're the light. Salt is meant to be dispersed. Light is meant to be emitted not to be hidden. And he says that we're to, live our, we're to live out good lives so that the world can see so that it might show people who God is. So they glorify our Father. And I think that's a really important thing, you guys. I think it's important. You know, in this series, we've been talking, a couple weeks ago, if you were here, we've been talking about the importance of seeing our neighbors. We actually made a little chart. We said it's important that we see our neighbors. We should see the needs of our neighbors. We should see the ways. We should look for ways that we can bless our neighbors. It's important that we keep our eyes open to the people who are around us. But I want you to know that the Bible is going to say that, yes, we should see our neighbors, but it's actually going to take it a step further. And it's going to say those of us who follow Jesus, we should also be seen by our neighbors, that we have to live observable lives where people can watch. Now, just to be clear, um, when I say that we should live observable lives, What I'm not saying is that followers of Jesus should live one way in front of people and then then only live that way when we're in front of people. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, In fact, uh, I think Jesus helps give some clarity on here. Jesus actually says in the very next, next chapter of Matthew, he says something that sounds almost contradictory to what he says here, but it's not. It's just more clarifying. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So that sounds interesting. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, uh, let your light shine in front of others. Let people see your good works. 
And then in Matthew chapter six, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And so you're like, which one is it, Jesus? And you guys, here's what I think is going on. I don't think that Jesus is condemning public acts of servanthood. I don't think that's it. I think what Jesus is going after is hypocrisy. That's what he's going after. We don't know what hypocrisy is. It's when you live one way in front of people, but then you live a totally different way when you're in private. And man, you guys, I think all of us know, every single one of us knows the damaging impact that hypocrisy can have. We all know it. In fact, my guess is maybe for some of you, if you're someone who's investigating Jesus, or maybe you're someone who, maybe you would say that you were a Christian. There was a time in your life that you were part of church and you followed Jesus. And maybe you would say that you've abandoned your faith. My guess is that maybe for some of you, the reason that you did that, maybe a big part, maybe the reason, is because of hypocrisy that you've seen in those who claim to follow Jesus. And maybe you know someone in your life who they said one thing with their mouth, they proclaimed one thing with their mouth, but they lived something totally different in the privacy of their life. And those two things were so incongruent for you that you, couldn't, you just couldn't put them together. Or maybe for you, maybe you grew up in a home like that. Maybe you grew up in a home where, man, when you guys were out in public, when you were at church, you put on a certain persona, but then when you got home and you were behind closed doors, you know what the real thing was like, and it wasn't like, like what was happening in public. And I'm just saying hypocrisy can be a damaging thing. So when I say live observable lives, I'm not saying live hypocritical lives. I think what Jesus is saying is we need to live integrated lives, that who we are in private matches who we are in public. But here's what I think Jesus is getting at. If, if the transforming love and life of Jesus is flowing into me, then the transforming love of life of Jesus should come out of me. And that should come out in every space in my life, whether I'm on the street corner or whether I'm in private, both those things should happen. But the Bible's gonna say, those who follow Jesus should live observable lives. And, and so, okay, so we live observable lives. So what are people gonna see? Well, that leads me to the second thing. I think living a questionable life means living an odd life. It means living an odd life. It means that we live in a way that's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Now, let me clarify what I mean, because sometimes Christians can do things that are weird for the wrong reason, all right? So let me explain what I mean by this. So I want you to listen to our passage. This is what Paul says. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. So it's kind of fascinating. Who's he talking about there when he says outsiders? Well, remember the context. Paul is talking to a group of followers of Jesus, And so when he says outsiders, what he means is people who don't follow Jesus. Just very simply, that's who he's talking about. However, here's what's ironic. What's ironic is most of the time when the Bible talks about outsiders, it actually says that followers of Jesus are the outsiders in the world that we live in, that we're to view ourselves as the outsiders in the world that we live in. Here's the language the Bible's gonna say. It's gonna say that for those who follow Jesus, we are aliens and strangers in this world that we are exiles and we are foreigners in this world. Now, what's that mean? It just simply means this. It means that those of us who follow Jesus are supposed to live a life that is foreign to the world around us. Um, The Bible uses another word that I think is maybe a little more clarifying. It actually says that followers of Jesus are to be God's ambassadors or Christ's ambassadors. Now, that's a a word that most of us have a category for. What is an ambassador? If you look up ambassador from dictionary.com, An ambassador is an important official who lives in a foreign country and represents his or her own country's interests there. So what is an ambassador? It's someone who lives in a foreign land as a foreigner, representing and embodying a foreign kingdom. So followers of Jesus, we're called to be weird. We're called to be odd 
but not because, not just for the sake of being weird. The reason we're called to be bizarre or different is because we're representing a different kingdom. And it's the kingdom where Jesus Christ is king. And it's the kingdom where we live out an allegiance to King Jesus, that we model a life of what it looks like. And that is to look different. I like the way Michael Frost said it. I love the, the title of his book. Followers of Jesus should live in such a way that's so different that it surprises people. It surprises the world. You know, maybe you guys have heard this before. There's an old communication theory that goes like this. It says, when predictability is high, impact is low. When predictability is high, impact is low. I think we've all experienced this. Let me give you a silly uh, analogy. So if you guys have been coming to the Medina East Campus for a while, you probably have noticed that there are some familiar and predictable elements to the way we conduct our weekend services. If you've been here, you kind of know the drill, right? And typically what we do is you come in, there's a, a countdown, and then we sing a song. And then afterwards, someone will get up and greet us and do announcements, and we'll pray. Sometimes we'll do a baptism, which we always love. After that happens, someone will get up and teach. We'll open God's word and we'll get a chance to look at God's word. So someone will come up here and teach. Usually they're very attractive um, and, um, and like real humble. And then at the end of the message, we sing some songs and we dismiss. And that's kind of how it goes, right? And that's fine. Now, here's the thing though, and I think we all know this. Uh, we do those things week in and week out. And I'm not saying that makes them any less valuable. They're still tremendously valuable things that we do. But I think all of us know this, that sometimes those things can become so predictable that they start to become invisible. We start to not notice them anymore because when predictability is high, impact is low. Now let's just say, again, silly illustration, but let's just say this weekend when you came in, rather than doing a song at the beginning, Pastor Seth and Jordan did a choreographed interpretive dance. They're just the whole thing, all right? And let's say afterwards I got up here and I walked up onto the platform and I had a unicycle, a bucket of jello, and a running chainsaw. All right, now here, here's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing that we'd have your interest. I'm guessing you'd be like, what in the world are they thinking? I don't have a category for, by the way, I was gonna do that this week and I was gonna get all that stuff, but the safety team advised me against it, so I decided not to, and those kind of things. But you guys, here's my point. My point is that when you see something that's so out of the ordinary, something that's so abnormal, it arrests your attention, it arouses your curiosity, and it causes you to ask the question, why? Just like my neighbor who had their plastic thing covered. I don't even care, I just wanna know. Why is that happening? And you guys, here's what I want you to understand is that this is the kind of life that followers of Jesus are called to live. One that's so bizarre, one that's so outstanding, one that's so weird in a good way that represents the kingdom of Jesus that people look at it and they're like, why? Why do you do that? Uh, can I, let, me, let me give you a couple examples of what this looks like. I'll give you an example from the first century first. So when you read the New Testament, the Apostle Paul and the biblical authors are going to instruct the Christians in the first century to live a certain way. And I want to give you just a sampling of the kind of things that they say. And you'll see this in your Bible. So in the first century, they're going to tell the Christians that older men should set an example for younger men, that older women should instruct younger women. They're going to say that young men should be self-controlled, specifically sexually self-controlled. They're going to say that wives should love, respect, and submit to their husbands. Husbands should sacrificially love and serve their wives. Children should obey their parents. Slaves should respect and work well for their masters. And masters should treat slaves with dignity, rightly and fairly. And everyone 
is to show proper respect to human authorities, including Emperor Nero, who killed Christians. So here's, here's what I'm trying to get at. Now, I just want to say that some of these concepts that I put up on the screen, some of these verses are very controversial. And sometimes people have believed that these passages are advocating for things like slavery and misogyny. But I want you to understand that that's not it at all. It's completely misunderstanding what the text is saying. You need to remember that these words were written into a very specific cultural circumstance. And what was the cultural setting in which they wrote these words? Well, listen, it was first century Roman Empire. And so what's the Apostle Paul doing? Here's what he's doing. He's speaking into that landscape, and he's calling God's people into a shocking, countercultural way of life. I mean, you guys, my goodness, nothing would have shocked the first century Roman Empire more than a slave who respected his master. That would have been surprising. That would have been, nothing would have been more surprising than a slave, than, than a master who treated his slave with dignity, like a human, with respect. That would have been so, nothing would have been more mind-blowing, more alien, more foreign than a young man in this culture who chose to live a life of monogamy with one woman sexually his whole life. That would have been so bizarre in the first century. Yes, this was questionable living in the first century. Here's the question the followers of Jesus need to ask in the 21st century. What does questionable living look like for us? What does questionable living? I guess, you guys, here's the, the real thing, okay? So for those of us who follow Jesus, I believe this whole conversation should cause us to ask a very important but very penetrating question. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I think that this whole conversation is causing us to ask this. And it's this. Is anyone asking? Is there anyone asking you? Is, is there anyone who's looking at your life and asking you, why do you do that? Why do you live that way? You know, I think sometimes when we talk about evangelism, the question that we get asked is, are you telling people about your faith? But you guys, I think the more important question is anyone asking you about yours? Is, are you living in such a way that it's so observably different than the people around you that it causes people to ask the question, why? Because let's be honest, you guys, if our lives just look the same as everyone else around us, the people around us, if we, if we just have the same set of priorities and the same set of values, and if we just spend our time and we spend our money and we complain about the same things and we do, if our lives look category, if our marriages and our relationships, they all look exactly the same as everyone else around us, it's not gonna be all that intriguing. And the truth is, even, even if you're a person who goes to church regularly, and even if you're a person who sometimes donates money to charitable organizations so that you can get a tax write-off, or even if you donate canned goods to a food drive, which, by the way, those things are great. They're good. Keep doing those things. But listen, let's be honest. They're not all that surprising. They're not all that intriguing. However, you guys, when our neighbors see things like this, when our neighbors see a generosity that defies cultural norms, when, when, our, when our neighbors see my goodness, it's almost illogical to me how generous you are. Why would you use your home? Why would you give of your possession? Why would you be as generous as you are? It doesn't make sense to me. It surprises me. Because when our neighbors see a marriage that looks compellingly foreign to the typical relational patterns that we see in marriages today, when your neighbors see, man, why is it that you guys speak so well of each other? 
You just, you seem to outdo each other in honoring. Why is it that it seems like even though your marriage has went through real trials and real trouble, you guys are so deeply committed to each other? That's weird to me. Uh, When the world sees an oddly different use of time and energy, when the world sees an unearthly kind of love that Christians show to one another, when the world sees a radical self-giving care for the needs of our community, why would you give of yourself in such a way to invite foster kids into your home? That's weird to me. Why would you, when the world sees a hope-filled response to suffering and tragedy and hardship that just looks different, when when our neighbors see an employee who exhibits outstanding integrity or a business owner who really cares for their employees, or when our neighbors see a person who conducts themselves in a counter-cultural way sexually, especially for some of you young folks, I mean, for all of us, but especially for some of you Young folks, man, when, when the world sees that you're saving sex for marriage, when the world sees that you, you're not engaged in the hookup culture like everyone else, when the world sees that, oh man, you know, that, 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 that couple is deciding not to live together, I'm just telling you, that's gonna look weird to the people around you. And when our neighbors see this, here's the point, when our neighbors see things like this, they might be compelled to ask, why? Why do you do that? That's so different. And what the Bible is saying is when someone asks why, here's the third thing. We need to be ready. We need to be ready to give a response. We need to be ready to give an answer to these things. Now, some of you might be asking, what does it look like to give an answer? What does that mean? Well, it's interesting. That's what what Paul says here in Colossians. He says that you should know how to give an answer to everyone. First Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer when someone asks you, do with gentleness and respect. So the question is, what, how, how, how do we practically prepare ourselves for this? I think there's a few thoughts on this one, and then, and then we'll wrap up. But here, here's the first thought that I have. I think part of what it means to be prepared for those who follow Jesus is it means that we need to be prepared to be bold. We need to be prepared to be bold. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, this is actually something that we've talked about quite a bit here at the Medina East Campus, but I think it, it deserves clarity. The Bible is going to say that we should proclaim the gospel boldly, boldly. Now, here's what's interesting. The word bold in the Bible, the word bold is not about the volume of your voice. It's not about the assertiveness of your actions. It's not about the loudness of your personality. Boldness in the Bible is not, I'm gonna get in your face, I'm gonna shove this down your throat, whether you wanna hear it or not. That is not boldness. Mostly, that is just being a jerk, right? That's not boldness. In the Bible, the word bold literally comes from two Greek words. And those two Greek words literally mean this, all speech, all speech. Like, what's that mean? Here's what it means. It means saying the whole thing. It is unreservedness in speech. Essentially, it's this. It's shooting straight. It's I'm not hiding anything. I'm not concealing anything. I'm just telling you what it is. I'm telling it to you straight. And you guys, I think for those of us who follow Jesus, we need to be prepared to be bold. We need to be prepared. Here's what I have found. I have found that sometimes when people ask those who follow Jesus for the reason why they do things, sometimes we are tempted to edit or water down the answer. So someone will say, why do, you, why do you live that way? And we'll say, well, you know, I'm just trying to be a better person. And it's like, is that true? Well, kind of. But is that the reason? Just say it. Just say the whole thing. It's because of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we're, we're afraid that if we say the whole thing, it might offend. Or we're afraid that we 
it might, we're, so, and I think we need to be ready to be bold. I'll give you a real, a real easy example of what this looks like. I actually think I saw this um, in a really, really tangible way uh, earlier this summer with my wife. So my wife, Jessica, she was outside talking to one of our neighbors uh, who we just we really love a lot. And she was talking to our neighbor and our neighbor was asking us about our summer. And so our summer was a little bit crazy this last year. And so we were we were involved in a whole bunch of um, kind of next generation type of activities and investments. And so at one point, we actually had a group of young adults that would meet at our house every week. And we would go through these trainings with these young adults. And so there was all these cars in, in our, uh, our driveway. And then we had camps and conferences and we were part of a bunch of different things that were going on. So we were in and out of town. So our neighbor was asking us about that. She was like, man, what have you guys been doing this summer? She's like, I saw all the cars in the driveway and you guys have been kind of in and out. And we told her, my wife was telling her, we're doing this stuff. And my neighbor, this is what she said to my wife, our neighbor said, man, you guys do such weird and interesting stuff. And I thought that was kind of fun. And then uh, she, asked, she looked at my wife and she, asked, she says, this is what she said, why? She asked. So you know what my wife said? I'm glad you asked. The reason is because of Jesus. So we follow Jesus. And we believe that, that Jesus is the one who has certain ways that he wants us to value and prioritize our lives. That's it. That's all she said. And you know what my neighbor did? Our neighbor just went, hmm. That's cool. That was it. <laughs> that was, but we're just like, yeah, she asked. She asked. So give the reason. So I'm just saying, for some of you, people are going to ask. And when they ask, be prepared to give them the reason. And the reason might be, and if the reason is Jesus, tell them. Tell them the whole thing. Because God will use you, I think, in powerful ways in that moment. I think it means to be prepared to be bold. Can I tell you, I think it also means this. I think another good way to be prepared is be prepared to tell your story. Be prepared to share your story. Sometimes I think we're afraid. Sometimes I think we're afraid to say the reason because we're afraid that they're going to ask a question that we can't answer, that we don't know all the answers to. And that's possible for sure. And I don't know is a great answer. But can I just say one thing that you do have is you have your story. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know, we talked, the woman at the well last week was such a great example. The woman at the well did not have a theological degree. The woman at the well, she apparently didn't seem like she had any sense of grand rhetorical flourish. But what she did have was she had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And she had a story that no one could deny. And I'm just saying, sometimes when someone asks you for the reason and the answer is Jesus, if they want to hear more, you can tell them your story. Be prepared to share your story. But lastly, I'll just say this. I'll just say, you guys, I think that when the Bible says that we should be prepared and that we should know how to answer everyone, I think another big part of that is that means that followers of Jesus should take some intentional efforts. We should make intentional efforts to be equipped so that we can articulate the reason for our faith. I think it's important. That's why we do things like the equipping division here. It's intended to equip you so that you have a way to answer and respond. I think that's why we do things like Alpha. All that you can check into on our website. I'm asking the band to come up, though. And as they do, you guys, I'll just kind of end the whole series. I'll end today's talk and the whole series with, with basically this thought. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And as a result of that love, that you should take the love that God has given you, the love that you have for him, and that love should spill over into the relationships around you. Here's the truth for those of us who follow Christ. Because God wants to use us. And if we would be willing to offer ourselves to him, to receive his love, if we could offer ourselves to him, he actually wants to use you to be a conduit of that love to the people around you. 
And I think if you'd be willing to open your heart and open your life to that, God wants to use you. He wants to use us to do that. And so as we have a chance to worship and sing, would you just open your heart and open your life? And maybe the posture of your heart is, God, here I am, send me, use me, fill me with your love so that I can love those who are around me. Let's pray. But Jesus, we do just want to say thank you for the love that you have for us. It's a self-giving love. It's a love that is sacrificed for our forgiveness. And God, when that love arrests our heart, it transforms us. And then it flows out of us. And it flows into the lives of others. And so, Jesus, we just want to say, here we are, Father. We want to consecrate ourselves to you. Use us and send us. And I pray that as a result of this church, these people who are in this room, Father, that the world would know who you are. Help us to be salt and light to the world around us. And we need your help. We need your help because we're such imperfect people, such broken people. But because you're so good, we come to you. We ask you that you would lead us and guide us. And we pray in Jesus' name.